Well, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1 again. We're continuing our series, working through that book. So please have it open in front of you, and I'll pray for us. Father, as we open your word, we know that it is trustworthy and true, just as you are. And we ask simply this morning that you will help us to understand what we hear, what we read, and that you will help us to stand on every promise that you have made. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, what makes a really great speaker? I've often wondered this. What makes a really great speaker? A, a cursory browse of the internet, everybody wants to offer you a bit of advice about that, but you'll soon glean that the general wisdom is that you need to have passion, that you need to speak plainly, that you need to work hard at it. It's called practice, practice, practice. If you want to be spontaneous, you've got to practice, apparently. Uh, and you have and a great sense of humor, apparently. <laughs> and most of all, though, everyone picks up on this one, to be really confident, to be confident, or very good at faking that you're confident, I suppose. Mark Twain quipped that there are only two types of public speakers in the world. One, the nervous, and two, the liars. Yeah? <laughs> now, I'm not really sure how true that is. I don't feel particularly nervous at the moment, but I, I, I am a little bit nervous, I suppose. Uh, I don't know how true that is. But one thing that everyone seems to agree on, though, is that the most confident speakers are those who are absolutely convinced of what they're saying and passionate about the subject. Apparently, you, can't, you just can't fake those. You've got to be convinced, and you've got to be passionate. Now, clearly, as we've looked at John the Baptist, we, you know, we looked at him last week, he was a, an amazing public speaker. Maybe 300,000 people came to hear him. He was definitely both of those, wasn't he? Passionate and convinced. You couldn't, you couldn't sort of claim that he wasn't. Even his very appearance showed he was convinced about what he was saying. But without doubt, the greatest public speaker of all time was the one who came after him, Jesus Christ. As one author puts it, listen to this, his logos, his word, was perfect. Whatever he said was absolutely true. His exegesis of scripture, explaining what it means, was flawless. His application of spiritual truth was the most penetrating in all of history. His ethos, the kind of person he was, was without parallel in the human race. The tone of his voice, the expression on his face, the integrity of his eyes flowed with truth. His pathos came from a heart absolutely convinced of man's need absolutely loving and absolutely determined. There never has been anyone as truly passionate as Christ in all human experience. These three, his logos, ethos and pathos, blended in Christ with such ineluctable force that he from the beginning was the greatest communicator the world has ever known. Isn't that great? What a summary. And, and so it's quite interesting to me that Mark records Jesus' first sermon in a short sentence. 
I mean, does, he just gives it to you. Apparently for Mark, you had to be there. Okay, You just had to be there. But as soon as John the Baptist exits stage, Mark draws our attention immediately to the start of Jesus' ministry. So John, we're told in verse 14, just a sort of throwaway comment there at this point, was put in prison. Mark will tell us more about what happened there later. But suffice it to say, if you confront people with their sin like John the Baptist did, they will not always fall on their knees in repentance, will they? (laughs) If you think that's always going to happen, you are much mistaken. Sometimes they will try to shut you up. Simon, that's exactly what they did with John the Baptist. But this morning, we're going to spend a little time looking at that second preacher in Mark chapter 1. The one that John describes as so great that he was not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Well, the verses that we've had read to us by by Mick earlier break nicely into two sections. So I've got two simple points for you to follow this morning. It's very, very straightforward. I hope I don't lose anyone here. First of all, in verses 14 to 15, how to preach good news. How to preach good news, and we're going to look at the master. And then verses 16 to 20, how to respond to good news. Or rather, how to respond to the good news, as we, as we said earlier. So first of all then, how to preach good news. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, it's really important we we sit here and just pay attention to this and look at this this morning, I think. Jesus here sets the benchmark for everything that will come after him, doesn't he? Marx boils his preaching down to a simple sentence. And every part of that sentence is important and indispensable if we are to be sure that we, have, we are faithfully preaching the same gospel that Jesus did. When I first uh, left home and went to university, um, during that first year, I think we had uh, some sort of a mission going on with the Christian Union. I was a little bit standoffish with the Christian Union anyway, but I went along to it as they were preparing for the mission. And uh, I remember sitting down and someone uh, asking us to try and write down briefly how we would explain the gospel to someone. You know, what is the gospel? How would you explain it? And I remember distinctly to my consternation, I could not put a coherent sentence together. I really couldn't. It's embarrassing and it's, it's dreadful, actually. So looking at these verses, we discover first of all from Jesus that it's a very simple message. It's a very simple, profoundly simple. You know, some people would love to complicate the message, wouldn't they, the good news? There are all kinds of people complicating it. In fact, I think that's usually a telltale sign of a man-made religion, is when you complicate it further than Jesus has. And especially when people try to add things to the gospel. You come across those people that are always adding stuff to the gospel, they want to add things that you've got to do. They, they, you know, the, the good news, good news about how I can be saved, how do I do that? Well, I'm going to add some things for you to do. You have to go on a really long journey. You have to go through a particular seminary, uh, uh, not seminary, uh, ceremony, or do a particular kind of ritual 
Or make sure you're clocking up enough good works. Make sure you're witnessing to enough people. Have you, you've got to have at least 20 people that have been saved through, through, through you. Then, then maybe. That's not good news. That's just slavery, isn't it? Always beware of the bite of the gospel adder. Gospel adder. Beware gospel adders. Now, I think we sometimes get muddled with it, despite the fact that the gospel is so simple. And one of the reasons for that is that the Bible uses a kind of shorthand to, uh, to express the good news throughout the pages. I wonder if you've noticed this, and this can be confusing. So imagine as a, as a, as a child coming, you know, reading through your Bible and coming across these different things and scratching your head. So the Christian message that you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's a great summary, isn't it? Did you hear that one? So what have you got to do? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. That's in quotes. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you'll be saved. Well, that's already slightly different from what Jesus is preaching. Isn't it? In words, isn't it? Repent and believe. How do I put those together? Or John the Baptist preaches... Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So there, all I've got to do is believe. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Well, he's not even saying believe. <laughs> or Acts chapter 16, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. See how there's all these different words coming in here. Now, I'm not trying to confuse you, but confess, believe, repent, Repent and believe. Believe and be baptized. Now, all of those are words associated with what it means to be saved. To be saved. Saved for heaven. But what do they all mean? Well, you'll be glad and relieved to know they are all tied up in what Jesus said right at the start when he started preaching in Galilee. They're all saying basically the same thing, just in a, in a kind of shorthand. And I want you to see that this morning. Jesus tells the crowds what they need to do and why they need to do it. Did you notice that? So in summary, he says they need to repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom of God is near. There's the urgency. Kingdom of God's near, so you need to repent and believe. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you've been joining us on Sunday nights, we've been looking at Daniel and that should actually start to lift some of the fog, maybe, about the kingdom of God. The book of Daniel makes a powerful point that there are essentially only two kingdoms that you can be part of as a human being. Only two kingdoms, just two choices. You've got the kingdom of man, or this world, all the kingdoms of this world, or on the other hand, you've got the kingdom of God. Only two choices. All the kingdoms of mankind, Daniel explains this very clearly, are going to crumble and they're going to fade and they're going to go. All of them will eventually fail. But the kingdom of God, on the other hand, though it starts as small as a mustard seed, is coming with inevitable unstoppability. And it will grow, says Daniel, until it fills the whole earth and it will never come to an end. And it is the only kingdom that will stand finally. The kingdom of God is basically what it sounds like. It's the realm over which God is worshipped as king. Fairly simple, isn't it? And with the arrival of Jesus, 
with the arrival of God's anointed king, that kingdom has finally landed on earth, hasn't it? With Jesus standing in front of the crowds here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, it is now so near that you could taste it. You should reach out your hand and touch it. That's how near the kingdom is. Now, how can you become a citizen of that kingdom? That's got to be the big question, hasn't it? How do I become part of it? Well, that is the second part of Jesus' message. You see how he set it up? That's the second part of Jesus' message. That's the what must I do bit. And Jesus is very simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Now, to repent, I'm sure you've heard it many times. We all know what repent means, don't we? It simply means, it's got the idea of turning. Turning 180 degrees. Going the opposite direction. That's that's the idea behind repent. Simply means to turn. It's what John the Baptist was calling the crowds to do, wasn't it? He had a baptism of repentance. Turn from your sin, he preached. In preparation for the arrival of God's king, make a decisive break with your sin. That's to repent, to turn. To believe, really I think it is better understood as to trust, means to trust God, to trust the good news. So we've got turning and we've got trusting. Turn from your sin and start trusting God instead. See, the instruction to repent and to believe is really just two sides of the same coin. This is a, you've got to get this this morning, and this is where, we're gonna, where I'm going to really try and work on this. It's, the same, it's kind of the same thing seen from two sides. That's why you'll notice that when the good news got summarized in all of those little bits I read out to you earlier from those verses, sometimes the author can miss out one or the other of them because they're the same thing seen from two sides. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. you see? Let me explain it the way I see it here. So you've got to tune in now. You can't repent without believing. And you can't believe or trust without repenting. Why? Because both of them, in fact, are about turning. To repent means to turn away from your sin. To believe or to trust means to turn to Jesus. Now, I was hoping that Daniel would be brave enough to be a volunteer this morning. There's no speaking part. Can you stand up and do something for me? You'll notice on the walls, I'm going to try and just really rub this in. On the walls, so come stand right in the middle. In the middle. <laughs> okay. On the walls, you'll see here, over on that wall, sin. Okay. On this wall, can you see that one? Jesus. Okay, right. Just the word Jesus. Okay. So Jesus on the wall there, sin on the wall there. Now, as a bog-standard human being in rebellion against God, which way are you walking? Right, okay, so do a bit of moonwalking, otherwise you're going to get there. Mo- no, you've got to moonwalk, you know, like Michael Jackson, this, this sort of thing. <laughs> no, 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 you've got to face, you're facing sin, aren't you? There we go. Okay, right, what I want you to do is start over here. Right, come over here, otherwise this is all going to fall apart. So stand here, right? Now, when, what does re- repent mean again? Turn, okay, right, so stand here, facing sin. Okay, and you're going to walk there. When I shout, repent, you know what to do, don't you? Right, ready? Three, two, one. Repent! Excellent. I've always wanted to shout that from forward. Well done. Right, go sit down. 
it's great to shout repent from, from a, a lectern. It's, it's fantastic. Okay. So do you see what happens there? I know it's a silly illustration in some ways, but I, ho- I think it helps, really. As I, you've got to get this, as I turn from sin, in the same motion, what am I doing? Turning to Christ. Can you see that? I, 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 can, I have to rip myself in half to do both. And I think it's helpful to, to point that out. Now, no illustration is perfect. And in fact, you could really put along with sin anything that competes with Jesus, anything that's competing with Jesus for your heart. So you're turning from anything that competes with Jesus for your heart, you're turning to Christ from that. See, this makes the point, doesn't it? You can't do one without the other. They're two sides of the same coin. And I think that's where we perhaps go wrong sometimes in our churches. We're a little bit, perhaps, sometimes too quick to call people believers when there is little evidence that they are repenting. Do you see where I'm going with this? Now, my computer has a serious problem with the word repented. It doesn't think it's a word. But it is. To be a believer means to be a repenter. And we assume and affirm sometimes people as believers when there is little evidence for it. And we do it for all kinds of wrong reasons. Let me give you some examples. And maybe you've been guilty of this. Someone's using the right language. Yeah, brother, born again, fellowship. Let's have some fellowship. And you use enough of that jargon, and we make an assumption, don't we? There's a believer. None of those words prove you're a believer or a repenter. Or sometimes we do it on the basis of social conventions. So their attitude towards certain things. Attitude towards alcohol. Uh, you know, he's, oh, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's good that way. Oh, yeah, he's, he, lives, he lives a good, clean life, doesn't he? Or modesty, or the style of clothing, or their likes and dislikes, and things they will look at and things they won't look at, places they will go and won't go. And, and they, they can create a kind of persona, can't they? And we think, yeah, that's a believer. But that's not evidence of a believer. Well, there might be some good indicators in there, but it's, you can't base it on that, can you? Or perhaps even on the basis of their heritage. Yeah, he's come from a good home. Yeah, oh, they love the Lord in that home. He's a believer. Don't make that assumption too lightly. And those are exactly the kinds of things, actually, that the, the Scriptures warn us against for identifying a man or a woman of God. Don't use those things as criteria. The bottom line, the bottom line about what makes a believer, have you heard the call of the kingdom? that the kingdom is near. Have you heard that call? And did you respond by turning from all the idols of this world and all of the sin that entangles you and putting your trust only in Jesus as your saviour? Did you do that? Then you're saved. Then you're saved. That's what the scriptures say. That's not what Andy says. That's what the Bible says. And you will want to be baptized in obedience to your saviour okay that will come and you will want to confess with your mouth that jesus christ is lord because he is and he's everything to you and every day you will fight the good fight to turn from your sin and to fix your eyes on jesus won't you that's a believer that's a repenter 
that's someone who's saved. That's a member of God's kingdom. And that is exactly what the disciples of Jesus do. They are all in. They are 100% with this, aren't they? See, it's a simple message. That's our first, our first point. Is it's a simple message there about Jesus' preaching, but it is also a demanding and an uncompromising message. It's exclusive. It's not an easy message. Isn't that funny? It can be simple without being easy. There's only one kingdom that you'll want to be part of, and there is only one way you can enter into that kingdom and have citizenship of it. And Jesus is clearly looking for a response, but not just any response. And you'll see this all through the Gospels. Jesus never lowers the bar on entering God's kingdom. He encounters a number of wannabe disciples, doesn't he, as you go through the Gospels. People who admire him, who love what he says. They, they want to come to him to hear him, but they're not ready to let go of their old life. They're not ready to do that. They're not really ready for a life of repentance. You see, repentance necessarily means that Jesus is going to come first from that day forward, before money, before career, before family, before friends, before everything else that you value in this world. And those are the kind of followers that Jesus is looking for, and those are the kind of men that he finds. Well, that brings us to our second point this morning, and you'll be glad to know we've already half covered it. But what you're going to do is you're going to see it in action, this. We've seen how to preach the good news. Now you're going to see an object example of how, how to respond to that good news. Verse 16, look with me. It's quite a remarkable scene here. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. What's Mark, what's Mark getting at here? Can you see it? Now, I guess this was not quite as out of the blue as Mark puts it across in his gospel. My guess is that these fishermen had maybe numerous times heard Jesus. They'd heard him preaching. They'd heard him preaching that message. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. John's gospel seems to indicate that even before this incident, they'd had a prior sort of uh, engagement with Jesus, an interaction with him. And they were saying, is this the Messiah? They're ready. That seed is already working in their hearts. Something's been stirred as they've heard the good news. And so as Jesus walks on the beach and sees Simon and Andrew, first of all, and then later James and John, that seed of repentance has been growing in them already, hasn't it? And there they are about their daily business. They're earning their bread. They're grafting, casting the net into the water, catching the fish, put food on the table. And Jesus calls to Simon and his brother. Hey, never mind about fishing for the fish. You come follow me and you can fish for men. We'll go catch men. Would you like to do that? And in an instant, according to Mark, and he's a dramatic writer, but this is the point he's making. In an instant, it's down with the nets and they follow him. No questions, nothing. And it's the same with James and John. 
as if for emphasis with Mark. It looks like, you know, they're partners in a small fishing business here with their dad, Zebedee. And Mark mentions employees working with them there in that last verse, you see? I'm sure old Zebedee had big plans about some one day, you know, handing on the business to the boys. But Jesus strolls up the beach with Simon and Andrew in tow behind him. He spots them and he calls. Hey, James, John, come follow me. Come follow me. And they leave everything. Everything. You know, look at the language Mark uses. At once they left their nets. Without delay, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. It actually sounds like they jumped overboard, doesn't it? And waded in, waded back to the shore. Incredible, isn't it? Those men do not look back. They've made their decision. They've turned, made a decision. And they give up their only source of income. They leave family, friends, career, and they throw their lot in 100% with Jesus. Their very actions illustrate what repent and believe look like and does do. That's what they look like. Now, you and I may never be asked to actually give up our jobs and friends and family. That may never happen. But Jesus made it very clear, if you want to follow him, then all of those things are going to have to come a, sec- a firm second place to him. And here's the thing, and I've seen this, and any Christian with any experience and any age behind them will have seen this. If they don't, if that's not how you make the decision, there will always be the constant danger that one day, probably a day when things get tough following Jesus, when things haven't quite worked out the way you're expecting, you'll turn back. You'll turn back. Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In other words, you've got to be all in with Jesus. There's no turning back. Now that's actually a really good test of where your heart is. And I want to just use this this simple thing to, to apply this morning the word to us and challenge us on this. Are you a believer? Because if you are, you will also be a repenter. You'll be a repenter. If you are, then following Jesus will look more attractive to you in your heart of hearts than anything else this world offers. It will. He's the one who in his great love for your soul left the throne room of heaven The darling son of God entered this dark world as a baby. He's the one who walked that lonely road, misunderstood, rejected, betrayed by his friends, to the cross at Calvary where he gave his life as a ransom to buy you forgiveness and redemption. And he is now the one risen and ascended, the victor over sin and death, the king of heaven. How can you love anything more than him? That's the heart of repentance and belief, isn't it? And those who are his know this is true. You know it's true. When you first put your trust in Christ, I was thinking about this earlier on uh, this week. When you first put your trust in Christ, at that moment when the penny dropped and you embraced Christ, 
Was there anything? Was there any idol, any sin that you would have chosen over him? So it should be throughout our lives. That's got to be the constant mindset of the believer, hasn't it? He is the treasure. He is the pearl of great price. To have him is to have joy unceasing. Do you believe that? Well, let me finish with this very revealing question that the preacher John Piper once asked his congregation. I don't know exactly how he worded it. I just sort of remember the gist of it. But it went something like this. He said, suppose you were to discover that all there was in heaven, with your expectations of heaven, that all there was in heaven was Jesus. That's it. Just Jesus. You've not got your harp. You've not got your clouds or your streets of gold. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. That's all. Revealing question. Would you still want to go? Would you still want to go? Would you still give up everything for that? It's a question that really gets us to search our hearts, isn't it? When we enter God's kingdom, we remain in God's kingdom exactly the same way, by repenting and believing, by turning from everything else to Jesus, our redeemer, our passion. So will you repent and believe the good news this morning? Will you keep doing that? Let's pray.